It's the Victorian Variety Show. In no place in the world has individual character more weight than at a public school. Remember this, I beseech you, all you boys who are getting into the upper forms. Now is the time in all your lives, probably, when you may have more wide influence for good or evil on the society you live in than you ever can have again. Quit yourselves like men, then. Speak up and strike out if necessary. For whatsoever is true and manly and lovely and of good report, never try to be popular but only to do your duty and help others to do theirs. And you may leave the tone of feeling in the school higher than you found it, and so be doing good, which no living soul can measure to generations of your countrymen yet unborn. For boys follow one another in herds like sheep, for good or evil. They hate thinking and have rarely any settled principles. Every school, indeed, has its own traditionary standard of right and wrong, which cannot be transgressed with impunity, marking certain things as low and blackguard, and certain others as lawful and right. This standard is ever-varying, though it changes only slowly and little by little, and subject only to such standard, it is the leading boys for the time being who give the tone to all the rest and make the school either a noble institution for the training of Christian Englishmen or a place where a young boy will get more evil than he would if he were turned out to make his way in London streets or anything between these two extremes. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, my exploration of aspects of life during the Victorian era that you may not have learned about in school or in the media, which I usually put out every two weeks. But for the first time since I started this podcast, I'm a week late this time because I was horribly sick last weekend. This was the first time I've been that sick in a few years, and thankfully, I'm quite a bit better now, but still a little weak so I may not be as energetic as I usually am, but I am glad I'm able to record today because I was looking forward to putting this one out. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from Tom Brown's School Days, which was written by British writer and social reformer Thomas Hughes, and first published in 1857. This book, which is set at an English public school in the 1830s, is said to be based in part on the author's experiences growing up. And I chose this passage because I think it gives you a brief yet comprehensive example of some of what I'm going to discuss in today's episode, the second installment of my examination of physical culture during the Victorian era. In my previous episode, I focused on the three waves or phases in which physical culture developed during the 19th and early 20th centuries, described some of the exercise equipment and techniques that appeared during this time, and introduced you to some fitness gurus of the past. 
And in this episode, I'm going to explore ways in which Victorian era attitudes toward physical fitness tied in with broader social views of the time regarding religion, nationalism, and imperialism. And I want to say before I go any further that this is going to be more of a general overview than I originally anticipated. Although I realized early on in my research of Victorian-era fitness culture that I had enough information for two episodes, when I looked at additional articles for this week's discussion, I started to go down rabbit holes and found some information that's not too familiar to me, so I would like to hold off on addressing it until I learn more and possibly revisit it in a future episode. And also, I want to acknowledge right now that some of the stuff that I talk about in this episode is pretty disturbing. So even though I'm not going to go as deep as I probably could, I thought it's important that you're aware of aspects of 19th century physical culture that could be considered problematic today as early as possible. As I explained in my previous episode, an interest in physical culture started to develop in the late 1700s, due in part to the radical changes industrialization was making to many lifestyles. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, most economies were primarily agrarian, so much work was conducted outdoors and was very physical. But the increase in industry transferred economic centers to cities, where most work was performed indoors, in offices where people generally spend long hours sitting at desks, or in factories, where some of the work might be more physical than it might be in offices, but the air and materials might be laden with chemicals. And when city folks stepped outdoors into the streets, they often breathed air that was polluted by what factories were producing. As a result, a number of exercise systems and gadgets were developed during the 19th century to help people proactively combat quote-unquote diseases of affluence, such as high blood pressure and gout, and so-called strongmen like Eugene Sandow became popular on the touring circuit and eventually attained the type of name recognition someone like David Beckham or The Rock has had in recent years. Looking through manuals such as Gustav Ernst's The Portable Gymnasium, or reading about the typical audience at one of Sandow's many appearances, we can see that an interest in fitness during this time was shared by both men and women, which, in my opinion, is a plus. Although I am curious as to the type of pressure that this might have put on women to try to achieve a so-called ideal body type, I haven't seen much about this in the articles I've looked at for these two episodes, but again, I'm going to continue doing research in this area, and if I ever find anything, hopefully I can talk about it someday. That said, as business and industry became more widespread, fears of a so-called crisis of masculinity began to grow, especially in the early 19th century, when large numbers of people especially men, left rural areas where they might have been part of larger communities in which most people knew each other and may even have worshipped together, and found new homes in cities that were lacking this sense of community. 
men who were privileged enough to escape factories or mills often chose business careers and took to wearing suits and top hats and carrying items like fancy pocket watches. According to Clifford Putney, an historian cited by Greg Morse in an article called The Search for Manly Men of God, such men were often seen as victims of quote-unquote over-civilization, which for many translated to quote, excessive body-denying intellectualism, the fruit of which was emasculation, physical and cultural, end quote. In addition, even though fears in Western churches about the so-called feminization of Christianity predated the Victorian era by several centuries due to factors like greater church attendance among women than men, which has been recorded here in the U.S. as far back as the 17th century and remains the case today in many parts of the world, and the fact that because men traditionally brought home the bacon, so to speak, they left tasks like the religious instruction of children to their wives, who were usually home with the kids during the day. Morse argues that these fears were accelerated in the early 19th century when, due to the increased number of men pursuing business careers, relatively few were left to become ministers. Those who were called to the faith were generally seen as, quote, mom's boys, whose health was fragile, and whose friendships were with women, end quote, as Anne Douglas, another historian cited by Morse, explains. As a result, the mid-19th century saw the birth of what was called muscular Christianity, the goal of which was to connect men with both their physical and their spiritual health. Morse credits the origins of this movement to several British writers who were frustrated by the effeminacy and weakness that they perceived in the Anglican Church, one of whom was the aforementioned Thomas Hughes, whose novels featured casts of characters who played rugby and sought the guidance of strong male role models. Another was Charles Kingsley, who may sound familiar to regular listeners of this podcast. When I saw his name in Morse's article, I was like, wait a minute, because in my episode on pteridomania, or fern fever, earlier this year, I read excerpts from an 1855 book called Glaucus, or the Wonders of the Shore, that was written by one Charles Kingsley, who was credited with coining the term pteridomania. So I went back and looked at my sources for that episode, and yep, it's the same dude. Both Hughes and Kingsley were Christian socialists, part of a belief system that in the 19th century blended social policies that stressed things like the sharing of goods and labor and blamed social inequality on capitalist greed with biblical teachings and the belief that young men should have a powerful faith and physical strength, both of which were needed for them to go out into the world and perform good deeds was reflected in their works. Eventually, this philosophy spread to Protestant churches in Britain, where ministers, songs, and even depictions of Jesus became more masculine and sermons became more forceful. A notable example of this new breed was Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher who, Morse tells us, quote, 
preferred the so-called vulgarities of good old Saxon words, end quote, to the more refined ones we often associate with Victorian culture. And Spurgeon once declared that, quote, a man of God is a manly man, end quote. According to Morse, despite their critique of over-civilization, proponents of muscular Christianity didn't think the answer was for men to go back to the way they'd lived in agrarian times. Rather, they genuinely believed men had a higher purpose and seemed to have intended for religious faith to be reflected more in the strength of their character and positive actions than in more obvious proselytizing. One result of this may be that several organizations that grew out of muscular Christianity that are still around today, such as the YMCA, which stands for the Young Men's Christian Association, and the Boy Scouts, became more secularized over time. In addition, Morse explains that prior to the muscular Christianity movement, sports and fitness in America were generally viewed as time wasters that distracted people from spiritual devotion, could be a so-called gateway to drinking and gambling, or could even become an addiction in their own right. However, thanks in part to muscular Christianity, sports became associated with things that align with a strong moral sense, such as teamwork, perseverance, and discipline. So, even though you might hear about American football coaches who hold prayer circles with their teams before games, for example, or see players of what's called soccer in the States and football in the rest of the world making the sign of the cross before they run out onto the pitch, sport is another way in which one can embody values that were important to progressive Christians without necessarily making an outward expression of one's religious faith. At this point, I think it's possible to look at muscular Christianity and think, this doesn't sound so bad overall. Some downsides, I think, were that stressing the importance of manliness overlooked a large percentage of the population. And it seems to me that such a mentality could encourage men to keep what were considered more sensitive emotions bottled up inside, which is not a good thing. But otherwise, one could make the case that the values muscular Christian writers and preachers were upholding, particularly to the extent that they involved doing good in the communities, are values that good people in general should uphold, it could be argued, regardless of whether they consider themselves Christians or whether they ascribe to any faith at all. However, the fear that men weren't spending enough time in church and ministers were too effeminate actually was more a symptom of a much broader viewpoint. Namely, that the waning of so-called traditional masculinity among individuals indicated that the nations that these individuals called home were also weakening. According to a Movement Health article called What is the Physical Culture Movement, which I cited in my previous episode and will include a link to in the show notes for this one as well, the relationship between nationalism and exercise goes back as far as the early 19th century, when gymnastics grew in popularity, especially in German and Scandinavian countries. 
One prominent person during this early wave of European physical culture was Friedrich Ludwig Jahn, who's often referred to as the so-called father of modern gymnastics. As Alex Graham tells us in Friedrich Ludwig Jahn and German Nationalism, Jahn is credited with inventing gymnastic mainstays like the vault or vaulting horse, parallel bars, balance beam, and rings, founded Germany's first open-air gymnasium, and helped to popularize gymnastics as a competitive sport. So there doesn't seem to be any doubt that he made a tremendous contribution to the field of gymnastics. But a big part of his avid promotion of gymnastics seems to have stemmed from what he saw happening in Germany as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. Jan joined the Prussian army in 1806 after Prussia was humiliated by Napoleon in the battles of Jena and Auerstadt and he touted gymnastics as a way to simultaneously restore the German people's spirits and prepare them for battle, if need be. Graham explains that as Jan's influence grew and more gymnastics schools opened in Germany, more and more students adopted Jan's nationalistic views, and his influence continued into the 20th century. So it's not surprising that Jan is considered a forerunner of the National Socialist Movement in the 1930s and 1940s. In fact, according to Wikipedia, Jan has been referred to as, quote, the spiritual founder of Nazism, end quote. Unfortunately, nationalistic views that would ultimately lead to catastrophic results weren't limited to 19th century Germany, as Michael Perlman and Vincent Fortillo argue in the brutal legacy of the muscular Christian movement. For example, in the second half of the 19th century, waves of European immigrants were putting down roots in many American cities. So fears were growing that Anglo-American culture was being threatened by so-called foreigners. Plus, after the U.S. Civil War ended in 1865, many white Americans were threatened by the idea of free African Americans and were looking for any justification they could find to maintain the upper societal hand. Which is why a sense that a scientific method of maintaining racial affairs started to take hold in the late 19th century. As I've mentioned in numerous episodes, the Victorian era was a time when a great deal of innovation was happening in just about any field you can think of. And in botany and horticulture, pioneers like Luther Burbank were making immense strides by grafting, crossbreeding, and hybridizing a wide variety of plants and fruits, and probably thought, if it works on plants, maybe it'll work on people. According to Wikipedia, Burbank, who, based on a Google search I did in putting this episode together, currently has a number of schools, banks, performing arts centers, and other establishments named after him here in the U.S., believed humans could be selectively bred similar to how plants were, and was an active member of the American eugenics movement, which, at the turn of the 20th century, 
was supported by many leading scientists and intellectuals who were seen as so-called progressives of their time. And when combined with sports, eugenics, which was initially based on the concept of choosing what was considered the healthiest stock, but eventually led to an association between strong genes and whiteness, which was taken to an extreme, you might say, in Nazi Germany, became a powerful tool that the U.S. felt it could wield in its quest to become a world power. As Perlman and Portillo explain, quote, Sports offered the supposedly genetically blessed elite young men an opportunity to display their potential as natural leaders. In effect, muscular Christianity was intended to produce the kind of leadership that aristocrats had historically exercised, especially in times of war. In contrast to aristocracy, where family ties had governed selection, muscular Christianity, which merged with the eugenics movement, was determined to scientifically produce a new breed of natural leaders on the basis of genetic inheritance, as well as the young men's own hard work and self-discipline, end quote. In the U.S., Perlman and Portillo point to American football as the sport that became the main vehicle to promote muscular Christianity and build empires. Originally developed at boys' schools in the northeastern U.S., American football eventually became an elite sport that was a huge deal at Ivy League universities like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And, of course, this sport is a behemoth at many universities across the U.S. today. And even though Britain was still the world leader when it came to imperialism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in fitness gurus and muscular Christianity, how Victorian Britain anticipated today's keep fit craze, James Stark tells us that by the end of the Victorian era, there was a great deal of anxiety in Britain about losing its so-called place in the world due to industrialization, military setbacks, and competition from other nations. Perelman and Portillo cite rugby as one of the muscular Christianity-friendly ways in which Britain sought to maintain its status in the world. And in Indian clubs in Victorian Britain, Connor Heffernan explains that even though wooden clubs were used to build strength and flexibility in India and the Middle East for centuries, British soldiers stationed in India in the early 19th century quote-unquote discovered them, incorporating them into their training activities, often in conjunction with music, and eventually bringing them back to the UK where the clubs were a hit until the 1920s and 30s, when organized sports became dominant. According to Heffernan, the club's perceived ability to improve strength and coordination fit in rather nicely with muscular Christianity, but, quote, was based on the observation of British army officials that their colonial Indian subjects often displayed a power unseen amongst British troops. Was it unusual for British officials to note the strength of their subjects? Perhaps not, 
but it is interesting that they attempted to mimic their colonial subjects' exercise patterns in a bid to improve their own strength, end quote. So, it definitely seems like there was some cultural appropriation going on when Indian clubs were popular in Britain. But they had some other uses that may strike you as less problematic. For example, Heffernan notes that the clubs were popular with women in Victorian England. They were able to take classes and participated in exhibitions in which they displayed their strength and skill with the clubs. And some early 20th century British suffragettes even reportedly used the clubs to defend themselves against the police. I'm going to wrap up this discussion of Victorian-era physical culture, its relationship with broader social themes, and the ways in which it inspired social and political movements in the 20th century. I apologize if this discussion comes across as somewhat disorganized. I wanted to give examples of things that were different, yet were somehow tied together, as so many phenomena seem to be when we look at the Victorian era. But this is a complex enough topic that each subtopic that I looked at could easily merit having its own episode. Also, I think this is a case in which it's important to examine how views that were popular in the 1800s not only continued into the 20th century and the present day in some cases, even though it might be a stretch to say that, for example, Thomas Hughes or Charles Kingsley predicted some of the insidious events that occurred in the 20th century that have been attributed, at least in part, to belief systems like muscular Christianity. Although many of these attitudes are still with us, they can sometimes be subtle. So I think looking at how they manifested in the past can make us more familiar with them and more aware of the places where we might find them. But now... I would love to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. Also, who knows what's going on with Twitter these days, but if you're still using it, you can follow me there at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And if you've given up on the Bird app, you can follow me on Mastodon, even though I can't remember the last time I was on Mastodon, this tends to happen, at marissad at is.nada.live. And if you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can now become a monthly supporter of this podcast for as little as 99 cents a month at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash support and if you'd like to make a one-time donation you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissa df13 on my linktree page at linktree slash the victorian variety show one word or on the good pods app I would also greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And finally, 
I want to give a shout out to Dustin of the Sandman Stories Presents podcast, who included me in a recent episode of his show. I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you check it out and maybe check out a few of his past episodes while you're over there, because I think you'll like them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you found this topic interesting. And thank you so much for all of your continued support of my show. I am truly grateful for all of your feedback, and I am always looking for ways to make this show better in terms of both research and production. I plan to be back in two weeks, if I don't get sick again, knock wood, with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with another excerpt that I found in Tom Brown's School Days by Thomas Hughes. I chose this excerpt to give you a better idea of how he wove some of the tenets of muscular Christianity into his writing and ways in which it was presented to the young men that it was geared toward. So it is, and must be always, my dear boys. If the angel Gabriel were to come down from heaven and head a successful rise against the most abominable and unrighteous vested interest, which this poor old world groans under. He would most certainly lose his character for many years, probably for centuries, not only with the upholders of said vested interest, but with the respectable mass of the people whom he had delivered. They wouldn't ask him to dinner or let their names appear with his in the papers. They would be very careful how they spoke of him in the palaver, or at their clubs. What can we expect, then, when we have only poor, gallant, blundering men like Kosif, Garibaldi, Mazzini, and righteous causes which do not triumph in their hands? Men who have holes enough in their armor, God knows, easy to be hit by respectability sitting in their lounging chairs and having large balances at their bankers. But you are brave, gallant boys who hate easy chairs and have no balances or bankers. You only want to have your head set straight, to take the right side. So bear in mind that majorities, especially respectable ones, are nine times out of ten in the wrong. And that if you see a man or boy striving earnestly on the weak side, however wrong-headed or blundering he may be. You are not to go and join the cry against him. If you can't join him and help him, and make him wiser, at any rate, remember that he has found something in the world which he will fight and suffer for, which is just what you have got to do for yourselves. And so, think and speak of him tenderly.